Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hola, people. Today, we are going right to the source, the point of origination for the stuff that makes us unhappy. And we're gonna learn how to disarm and disable the potential suffering right there before it metastasizes and owns us. Here's how this works. Everything that comes up in your mind, every sight, sensation, thought, etc., all of it is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In other words, with everything we experience, we either want it, don't want it, or don't care. In Buddhism, these are called feeling tones. The ancient Pali word is Vedana. Okay, so why does this matter? Why should I care about Vedana or feeling tones? Because if you are unaware of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, then you're controlled by it. In other words, for example, you taste some chocolate, but because you're not seeing how the mind is grasping after the pleasant, you reflexively gobble a whole bunch of the chocolate, and you aren't even tasting it. For the record, I am definitely not anti-chocolate. I'm just pro tasting the chocolate. Similarly, if you are unaware that certain people or things provoke aversion, then you can unthinkingly avoid or even be aggressive towards them. In this way, we can be like puppets on a string, just yanked around by greed or desire, hatred or aversion, and numbness or delusion. So today, we're going to talk about how to drill down on this embarkation point for our suffering and zap it with mindfulness, which can stop the whole cycle. My guest is Christina Feldman, who was uh, part of that whole generation of Dharma teachers that began teaching here in the West back in the 1970s after spending years studying with the masters over in Asia. She is a co-founder of Gaia House, a retreat center in the UK, and has also served as a guiding teacher at the Insight Meditation Society beginning in its early days. More recently, she's a co-founder of Bodhi College, which is dedicated to the study and practice of the early teachings of the Buddha. And she's the author of a book called Boundless Heart and co-author of another book called Mindfulness, Ancient Wisdom Meets Modern Psychology. In this conversation, we talk about why Vedana is often called the ruler of consciousness, the king or queen of consciousness, how to practice with Vedana and the benefits of doing so, her uh, quite mellifluous description of the Buddha as being very focused on understanding the architecture of distress, her contention that distress or unhappiness is not a life sentence, her definition of genuine happiness, what she means by the power of giving greater authority to intentionality rather than to mood or story, and her personal practice of setting life intentions every year. All right, we'll get started with today's guest right after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Thank you. 
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Christina Feldman, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm very happy to have you here. I've heard your name many, many times in the Dharma scene and never actually met you. So it's a pleasure to to finally meet you, albeit virtually. So, all right, we're talking today about the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana, or feeling tone. Can you define that for us, for us newbies? Before I dive into Vedana specifically, I think it's good to remind everyone to hold the big picture of the four ways of establishing mindfulness, body, feeling tone, mood, and psychological, emotional processes. A friend of mine refers to this as being like the four channels on a television, and they're all broadcasting simultaneously. But our attention may be drawn intentionally or unintentionally to one of the ways of establishing mindfulness over the others. But it doesn't mean that the others have stopped broadcasting. So today we're focusing on the second way of establishing mindfulness, feeling tone or Vedana. We haven't left the body behind We haven't left moods behind. We haven't left process behind. In truth, all of this has a Vedana tone. All of this has a feeling tone. So this is like the hedonic tone of experience. That's one way of presenting it. It's very important to distinguish between what Vedana is and what emotion is. In Buddhist psychology, emotion is quite a a complex construction, whereas Vedana, or feeling tone of experience, is something much simpler. In fact, so simple that people are often prone to overthink it. 
to over-conceptualize it, to think that it has to be more complicated. In Buddhist psychology, there's a tremendous amount of significance given to being mindful of Vedana. The Buddha refers to Vedana as being the ruler of consciousness, the king or the queen of consciousness, that this is the first building block of our moment-to-moment world of experience. And yet it can be so subtle and There are so many Vedana tones that we're often really far down the road from the feeling tone to emotion, to mood, to reactivity, that we have hardly even noticed what the Vedana tone is. So when we talk about Vedana, we're talking about the feeling tone of sensory impression. So every sound, every sight, every taste, every touch every smell, every thought, every mood has a Vedana tone. And this is pre-verbal. You know, we're not sitting back wondering, oh gosh, was that pleasant or was that unpleasant? It's something that is so pre-verbal that sensory impression is imprinting on consciousness as being pleasant or as being unpleasant or as being neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So those are the three core Vedana tones or feeling tones of experience. So in every moment, the sights, the sounds, the thoughts, the moods, the the tastes, the touches, we're swimming in this kind of sea of Vedana, one after another that are happening so quickly, imprinting on consciousness, and yet playing such a significant role in what happens next. Because not only is the feeling tone quite pre-verbal, many of our reactions are also quite pre-verbal. We see ourselves so uh, impulsively and so hastily moving towards the pleasant. We find ourselves so impulsively recoiling or moving away from the unpleasant. And that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we tend just to ignore, or it becomes almost like a launch pad for craving. Something's missing, something's absent, there's something wrong, you know, there's nothing happening. I need to make something happen in order to feel more, more alive, more interested. The Buddha was quite passionate about understanding the architecture of distress and unhappiness and struggle. He recognized or pointed out that unhappiness is not a life sentence. Distress is not a life sentence. That this is something that is created and recreated, mostly unconsciously, on a moment-to-moment level. He also pointed out that Happiness or the end of distress is not something we have. It's not something that happens to us. Happiness and the end of distress, freedom, is something that is cultivated and practiced moment to moment. So in perhaps simpler terms, according to Buddhist psychology, happiness is not something we have. It's something we cultivate. Unhappiness is not something we have. It's actually something we're practicing. 
So he said, we need to understand the architecture of distress and the architecture of freedom. And to understand that, we also need to understand the architecture of our own world of experience, how our world of experience is being constructed and built moment to moment. And in that constructing process, Vedana plays a very pivotal role. We would all recognize that we don't live in the same world of experience. I look outside of my window and I see quietude and a lot of silence and not many people. And I look out my window and I'm delighted. Another person would look out that same window and feel, oh, there's so much missing. Where's the excitement? You know, where's the buzz? Where's the, the stimulation? We live in very, very different worlds of experience. And these worlds of experience are being constructed and built moment to moment. So the Buddha presented a very, almost kind of very simple cognitive chain that we can track and trace in our own experience so as to bring about a clear understanding of how our world is born and also to bring about the possibilities of choosing more freely what world of experience we are going to inhabit. So this cognitive chain is quite simple. And I'll just go through it and then I'll unpack it a little bit. So it begins with contact. The eyes meet the sight. The ears meet the sound. The nose meets the sense. The, the tongue meets the taste. The body meets sensation. And the mind, which in Buddhist psychology is the sixth sense door, meets the world of arising and passing thoughts and images and memories. That meeting together of the sense door and the sensory impression is called contact. So in this chain, the Buddha says, when there is contact, there is feeling tone. So there is the feeling tone in that meeting of something being sensed as being pleasant or unpleasant as neither. When there is feeling tone, there is perception. What we feel, we perceive. We begin to place a name or a label upon what is happening. Oh, that sight is a bird singing, or it, it's a car alarm going, or that sensation in the body is, you know, my aching back or my, my aching leg. That mood is, oh no, that familiar visit of depression or sadness. When there's contact, there's feeling tone. When there's feeling tone, there is perception. What we perceive, we think about. Why is this happening? Where did it come from? What is its history? What is its future? What we think about, we proliferate about. And what we proliferate about, this becomes the shape of our mind and the shape of our world. It sounds quite simple. It's something we can track in our own experience. In reality, it is happening so quickly that we arrive at that place of our world being shaped, our world of experience being shaped, that this is beautiful, this is ugly, this is exciting, this is boring, I am like this, you are like that. We arrive there so quickly. So the place of mindfulness is to begin to slow down that process. Viktor Frankl, who was a concentration camp survivor, there's a quote attributed to him where he says, between 
stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. In our power to choose lies our growth and our freedom. So what we are endeavoring to do is to more and more cultivate that space between stimulus and response so that there is the power to choose how we interface and how we interact with the world around us. Vedana is ethically neutral. It's not something we're necessarily choosing. There will always be Vedana tone. And liberation or freedom doesn't mean the end of Vedana. The Buddha had also swam in a sea of Vedana. So then we would think, well, what really is the problem? And the problem or the issue is the way that feeling tone taps into this background world of habitual reactions, habitual patterns. Let me just share an observation I had upon listening to you, and I want to get into great detail about the role of Vedana in our distress. I love that phrase, the architecture of our distress, and practices for unpacking this, slowing it down. But just the first observation I found coming to my mind as I was listening to you talk is just the brilliance of the Buddha who was able to stare into the swarm of ceaseless change in his mind, the mind, our minds, and figure out that all of it actually is unfolding lawfully, even though it seems chaotic. And to be able to put things in an order, okay, contact leads to, you know, Vedana leads to whatever, I forget the order. That's just an incredibly impressive move among many on his part. It is. I am consistently awed by the genius of the Buddha. And I often think of the Buddha as being a kind of map maker, that he could look at his own mind and he could look at the minds of others and he could sense both the personal story, but also sense the universal story of how the mind works and then come forward with these maps almost. I think of them as maps or charts that he could offer to people as tools. You know, he says, I can do this. I can look at this. I can see this unfolding in this way. And you can too. And by looking at this and understanding this, you're actually going to find the same freedom that I've discovered in my investigations. Come see for yourself. I believe that was one of his rallying cries. Yeah. You invoked the Buddha when you described Vedana as the king or queen of consciousness. It rules consciousness. You covered it a little bit, but it's worth breaking it down. So what happens, and I'll, I'll restate this clumsily and you can jump in and correct me, is something arises in our mind. We see something, hear something, taste something, think something, feel something. And then it has this flavor of pleasant or unpleasant or neither. And that just sets us down a road that is often unconscious, and it can lead to all sorts of deleterious impacts. Yeah, it's the embarkation point that sets off a certain trajectory of reactivity, a road we've been down a million times. And yet, often we go down that road, and we end up 
in very familiar places of struggle or fear or anxiety or reactivity. And we can often have this sort of sense of bewilderment, like, how did I end up here? Often followed by the word again. (laughs) I think one of the great gifts or the great blessings of being able to track some of these processes is that it takes a sense of bewilderment out of experience. We know how we ended up here. We know that, yes, we really experience that smell as being something so pleasant, you know. And then we remembered, oh, yes, it's that coffee I really love. And then before we know it, we're moving towards the coffee shop and we find we're on our third cup of coffee and then we're buzzing and then we're kind of overstimulated. And we say, how did I end up here again? And we start to know how we ended up there. And the bewilderment goes. And maybe in that first smell, maybe we have the ability to pause for a moment and to ask, is this really what I want? Is this really beneficial to me? Is this really helpful? Or maybe we are ending up in the coffee shop and we're still able to pause and say, well, maybe one cup's enough. You know, maybe I don't need that second or that third cup. And maybe in those moments, we're beginning to cultivate those choices rather than being held hostage to those underlying patterns of reactivity. It could feel like a technical meditation point, but the ramifications are profound. They're huge. They're huge. You said before, and I think it's worth just double clicking on this, feeling tones are not to be confused with the popular vernacular of feelings or emotions. Yeah. Can you just say more about that just before we proceed with other questions, just so that we're super clear on what Vedana or feeling tones are and aren't? If you stroke the back of your hand, the basic impression is it's quite pleasant. Mm -hmm. It's quite pleasant. That's not an emotion. It's just a very simple imprint. This is quite pleasant. If you were sitting on a bus and a stranger stroked the back of your hand, what would the feeling tone be? It would be unpleasant. Now, we can go from the pleasant to, oh, yeah, that feels quite pleasant. I wonder if I can now uh, perhaps book myself in for a hand massage. You know, I'd really like a little bit more of this, you know, or, oh, no, this reminds me of my ex-partner, you know, who used to love to stroke the back of my hand and I loved it so much. And now that's over and it's gone and I was so heartbroken. That's the emotion. The emotion is that construction of the feeling tone, the memory system, the somatic experience, the sense of wanting or not wanting, and all of the story and the narrative, that's the emotion. Suddenly I'm really happy, or I'm sitting on the bus and a stranger strokes the back of my hand, and that initial imprint is really unpleasant. And how many seconds does it take before I'm actually in the emotion? I hate this. This shouldn't be happening. Who is this person? I have to get off this bus. You know, I'm freaked out. I'm scared. I'm out of here. That's the emotion. So the key player in slowing this down and not being carried away in this often habitual, reflexive, automatic chain of reactivity, the key player is mindfulness. The key player is mindfulness, but I would also suggest that mindfulness is rarely enough in itself. Hmm. Mindfulness is always part of a happy, cooperative, extended family. 
So it's not just the mindfulness of seeing, oh, yes, that's pleasant or that's unpleasant. There may be very many other family members cooperating with mindfulness in order to change and transform some of those patterns. It might be the cousin of investigation. It might be the cousin or the brother or the sister of committed intentionality. It might be the cousin of skillful effort. It might be the cousin of compassion. But mindfulness is never a standalone quality. It's a beginning point, but it invites other family members in, in order to change the paradigm of reactivity. So mindfulness, this clear seeing of whatever's happening right now, paired with the investigative faculty of mind, with compassion for your own suffering or that of others, and many of the other positive capacities of the human mind, can help us get in there close to the embarkation point before we're all the way in the coffee shop or departing the bus. Yeah. I mean, according to the Buddhist teaching, the awareness of Vedana is the weakest link in breaking the chain of reactivity. That's not to imply that if we're not mindful at the place of Vedana, that all is lost, because mindfulness can kick in, you know, along the chain of reactivity at different points. But it's the weakest link of the chain. So when we think about why such emphasis is given to Vedana, it's not because, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, Vedana is ethically neutral. It's more about how the different Vedana tones are triggering craving, aversion, and confusion, and how it seems to be almost hot-wired in. The pleasant seems to be almost hot-wired into the craving, wanting, more, more, more pattern. The unpleasant seems to be almost hot-wired into the aversion, ill-will, fear, reactivity landscape. And that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant seems to be hot-wired into the confusion landscape. I just don't know what's going on. Although I and many other teachers really have ongoing questions about this third category of something being neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and whether it's actually just what we're not really paying attention to. If I look around my office right now, the color of the walls doesn't immediately impress me as being pleasant or unpleasant. You know, my computer screen doesn't immediately impress me as being pleasant or unpleasant. And so often my attention will drift away. I'll think, oh, you know, that's not worth attending to because it doesn't excite me or I don't have a particular story or history with it. Whereas actually, if I have the intention to be quite aware and attuned to those simple things. You know, about 80% of our experience in every moment is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. If I actually make the effort and have the intention to tune into this, it doesn't stay neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It might become quite interesting. I might find myself quite curious about it. I might become quite appreciative of it because mindfulness also has a Vedic tone, which is pleasant. Hmm. So even just merely paying attention to something that may seem neither pleasant nor unpleasant, utterly, irretrievably neutral, merely attending to it carefully, being mindful of it, 
could imbue it with some positive valence because mindfulness tastes good. Yeah. I know this is stretching the conversation a little bit, but if you just kind of put the Vedana tones, the three Vedana tones, alongside, for example, the Brahma-Vihara practice of kindness or metta, and how that is often taught in these categories, you know, of friends, benefactors, pleasant, difficult people, and sometimes ourselves, unpleasant. And then there's a category of people who we see as being more neutral. Some years ago, as a life intention, I made the life intention to not have any more neutral people in my life. So it didn't mean I was going pursuing people with meta, but, you know, I realized how many people pass in and out of my world on a daily basis that I don't actually see because I have no personal history, no shared story, no sense of shared meaning with them. And so they become neutral, which is, again, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And by bringing that intention into my life to have no more neutral people, I discovered it's quite actually transforming. Hmm. It means I see people. You know, when people pass me on the psychopath, I actually see them. There's a, a wonderful Tibetan teaching that says, wherever my gaze may fall, may it be filled with tenderness and respect. And I think of that as being sort of the essence of practicing kindness with people we see as being neutral. But I also see it as being the essence of practicing with this domain of Vedana that feels neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And what we see is that mindfulness actually brings the world to life. It enlivens, it animates the world. You know, you go out on a walking path and we know that if our minds are full and busy, we can come back from a walking meditation and realize nothing has touched us. And we go out in that same walking path in another moment where there's far more wakefulness, intentionality, presence, and suddenly the world comes to life. You know, we see the nuances, the subtleties of, you know, the light and the grass and on the trees. We hear the sounds that would normally we would just be background. And mindfulness in that sense is really bringing the world to life. Coming up after the break, Christina Feldman explains exactly how to practice with Vedana and the benefits of doing so after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. 
for me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. You've brought us to the notion of practices, and I have some more technical questions about how Vedana works, but now that we're talking about, you know, kind of what to do about all this, let's just stay here for a second. Imagine that there are people listening to the show who really have very little experience with meditation, and they've heard you talk about this key, often overlooked link in this chain of our distress, Vedana, our feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. I imagine people who are reasonably new to meditation might be wondering, okay, what to do about this? I heard you just talk about eliminating neutral people from your life. Well, that's very interesting. But what do I do in my meditation practice and by extension my life to get a clear sense of Vedana as they arise and so that I'm not so hooked by them? Well, there's a couple of suggestions I would make. First of all, I mean, I I would mention, you know, in my experience and in seeing how other people's practice unfolds, that we really can struggle and not do well with overgeneralized intentionality. You know, we can wake up in the morning and say, well, I'm just going to be mindful today. Well, good luck. (laughs) The intention is so generalized. It doesn't really probe beneath the surface of things. And I find there's much greater benefit in having specificity of intention and allowing an exploration or investigation to really deepen until it's much more in our bones. And I think the contemplation of Vedana is one of those intentions that benefits us hugely by being quite specific about it. And there's different ways of doing that. First of all, we could start in the place where we often end up, in the impulse. I'm moving towards something. I'm moving away from something. This is often quite obvious to us. And we know that it's so distress-causing to be a prisoner of those surges of craving and aversion, to feel that we have no freedom, no autonomy in that world, that we're just endlessly either pursuing or fleeing. So we could start on that level. Let me get up in the morning and just have that intention. I'm just going to track those impulses of craving. Or I'm just going to track these impulses of aversion or fear. I'm just going to get to know this territory a little bit better. 
what is actually going on here? I'm learning maybe I can begin to pause in the midst of those impulses, that my hand is reaching out for my, my screen. Ah, maybe I can just pause for a moment. What is really pushing me here? Maybe I could just pause in that moment where I find myself kind of shutting down because something's unpleasant. And maybe I can just stay present for just a few moments longer and really begin to sense the landscape, the painful landscape of fear and aversion. And maybe in those pauses, I can begin to learn, you know, maybe a little bit more resilience. Maybe I can learn a little bit more about equanimity. Maybe I can learn a little bit more about freedom. I think this is a practice that we could benefit from staying with for quite some time because we're dealing with some of the kind of really core human patterns of distress making. We could also begin to take the contemplation of feeling tone itself as something that we stay with. The sight, the sound, begin to really notice, make that impression on consciousness less preverbal and more in the field of awareness. Ah, that's pleasant. Ah, that's unpleasant. Maybe we begin to see in doing this over a period of time that we're actually stepping out of that chain of feeling, perception, proliferation, craving, aversion, clinging. Maybe we're just making those spaces a little bit bigger and naturalizing them and beginning to find that choice of freedom is in truth in our hands. But it asks for intentionality, it asks for mindfulness, it asks for care, and it asks for some commitment of awareness to actually understand the processes we find ourselves in. So in this second practice you're proposing here, are you saying that in our formal meditation practice, we might set the intention to just look at the feeling tone of anything that arises in the mind? Or are you saying in our walking around life, we should look for it? Both. 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 I mean, in our walk around life, of course, this is all happening so quickly, it can feel overwhelming to begin to track the feeling tones. But in our more formal meditation practice, when the activity of our sense doors is a little bit more restricted and protected, we can actually, I think, begin much more to notice, ah, that body sensation, pleasant, unpleasant. That thought, ah, pleasant, unpleasant. We can begin to slow down those processes much more, which it is in truth a training for our lives. And it does raise some bigger and more profound questions. We imagine that feeling tone is implicit in sensory impression, events, and experiences. We have the perceptions that this is implicitly beautiful, this is implicitly ugly, this is implicitly lovely, you know, this is implicitly fearful. In the absence of awareness, we tend to externalize Vedana tones into experience, events, people, situations. Now, from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, there are certainly realms of experience universally that hold that implicit unpleasant experience. A broken leg, we don't enjoy. No one's going to say this is pleasant. Grief certainly has universally, as well as personally, very painful tones. Depression, no one enjoys depression. This is a percentage 
of experience. The rest of it we're kind of making up. Because when we see the Vedana tone as being implicit in experience, that's the basis of craving, of wanting, of the sense of insufficiency. When we see the unpleasant as being implicit in a sight or a sound or an event, that's the root of aversion, of ill will, of fear. And yet we see, when we begin to really look, we see it's actually not implicit. Something that we've experienced as being quite pleasant in our lives. The piece of chocolate cake. Try it on the 10th slice. Something that we may have experienced in our life and and imagined that this implicitly holds the power to make me unhappy. That a person or an event has the power to make us unhappy. We discover in developing some resilience, some curiosity, courage or wise protection We see it doesn't actually hold the power to make me unhappy. And yet the huge implications of investing this implicit feeling, tone, and experience, the implications of that are enormous. All of the things I avoid in life, all of the things I feel I have to have in order to be happy, all of the things I have to avoid so I'm not going to be unhappy. This makes us, as the Buddha put it, a a hostage to the world of conditions. And, you know, the Buddha recognized that we're we're all vulnerable to the world of conditions and need to be vulnerable and to be touched by the world of conditions. But we don't need to be hostage to the world of conditions. What do you mean by the world of conditions? All of the sights, all of the events, all of the experiences, all of the sounds, all of the somatic events, everything that happens to us in a single life. This is the world of conditions we live in every moment. It rains today, it's sunny tomorrow, you know, the grass grows, we have a drought, we have pleasant people in our lives, we have difficult people in our lives. This is the world of conditions. And if you're hostage to it, you can never self-generate happiness. You're on a string all the time. You're on a string all the time. Marcus Aurelius, thinker of the past, he once said, we can dance like puppets through our lives on the ends of the strings of our impulses. I think this is not really a description of freedom or, or happiness. What's the alternative? Well, we can move from reactivity to responsiveness. And I think this is actually the heart of the Buddhist teaching is to move from this kind of like habitual automatic reactivity of wanting and not wanting, pursuing and pushing away to a life of responsiveness. We appreciate the pleasant. We celebrate the pleasant. We savor the pleasant. We get touched by it deeply without holding, without needing to make it mine. We will experience the unpleasant in life. And there is a great deal of it. And we can ask the question of, what does this need? Is it more resilience? Is it more compassion? Is it more space? Sometimes it's more boundaries. But we can respond to the unpleasant rather than fearing it or fleeing from it. There's also a way in which seeing through the illusion of inherent pleasantness or inherent unpleasantness or inherent neither nor can, and I believe this is an argument you make, and I'd be interested to hear you say more about it, it can uh, relieve us from some shame and blame and, oh, well, this is my fault. Yeah. You think about someone who lives with a chronic pain or chronic illness. It is unpleasant. It's implicitly unpleasant. 
And yet the unpleasant can be so compounded by the reactivity, by the blame, the shame, the fear, I've done something wrong. If I was a better person, this wouldn't be happening to me. You think about someone living with depressive relapse. It's unpleasant. And yet it's made so much more unpleasant and difficult by the amount of judgment that is added to it. That if I was a better person, I wouldn't feel this way, I wouldn't experience this. The Buddhist story of the two arrows is so pertinent to this. You know, the story of somebody being shot by an arrow, and it hurts. It would hurt anyone. And then the way that the second arrow is, you know, who shot that arrow? What is that arrow made of? Where did it come from? Why did they shoot that arrow? Why did it happen to me? Things are always happening to me. We can see the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth arrows flowing our way, and then we're lost. Then we feel really lost. Or we can come back to that first arrow and say, yeah, sometimes life hurts. Sometimes life is lovely. Sometimes that first arrow is really painful. And I can respond to that painfulness. I can care for that wound without adding the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth wounds. I've inserted many arrows voluntarily or (laughs) at least habitually. Let me ask something about the pleasant feeling tone. And this harkens back to your invocation of the Buddha around not being hostage to the world of conditions. But are you saying that we shouldn't enjoy chocolate cake? We should definitely enjoy chocolate cake. There is so much in the world that is lovely and pleasant. In the world of arts, the world of nature, the world of relationship, there is so much that is lovely and pleasant and it gladdens our mind. And in truth, in the Buddhist teaching, this cultivation of appreciation and joyfulness is what resources us inwardly to be able to meet the difficult in a clearer and more balanced way. That appreciation and that celebration of the lovely is certainly not ruled out in the Buddhist teaching. In fact, it is something that is encouraged. We can appreciate, we can celebrate, we can be touched by the lovely and gladdened by it without adding the second arrows. You know, I need more of this or where did this come from? How do I make it last? We can see already that the moment that appreciation moves into craving or clinging, the appreciation itself is already quite substantially muted. We've moved into a different world where there is distress. I think there's something about seeing the painfulness of craving and seeing the loveliness of appreciation and the difference between those two. You've said pleasantness is often sabotaged by craving. Yeah, because craving is painful. Sometimes we have a memory of the pleasantness, but not the pleasantness itself. Right. So we're on the 75th Oreo because we have this memory of the dopamine from the first. Exactly. How do you practice with this? Because I think food or all the other pleasant things in the world, our capacity for addiction can kick in really quickly. How do you recommend we practice with this really seductive, pleasant feeling tone? One of the similes to describe mindfulness is the image of the wise gatekeeper, learning to be a wise gatekeeper. A wise gatekeeper in the image that's used in mindfulness stands at the gates of the city and welcomes in all of the visitors who mean to serve the city well and recognizes but doesn't welcome in the saboteurs. And 
in many ways, I think we learn to be a wise gatekeeper of our own hearts and minds, of knowing when there's that movement from appreciation into insistence or craving, knowing when we're chasing stimulation, where we're chasing a sensory contact impression in the search of feeling more alive. The Buddhist teaching is, is, yes, appreciate the loveliness of life and the world, but recognize that true happiness is inwardly generated. So perhaps, you know, we learn to be a wise gatekeeper of knowing when we're into those places where we're either, you know, indulging or entertaining the saboteurs of well-being, or when we're pursuing the, you know, I need more good visitors. I need a population of good visitors when we're pursuing that. Learning to be a good gatekeeper. I mean, I realize I'm kind of using multiple images here, but one of the images you see in Buddhist artwork is the image of the, a house with five open windows and an open door. And the five open windows represent the five traditional sense doors, the eyes, the ears, taste, touch, smell. And the open door of the house represents the sense door of the mind. And through the open windows and the open door flows this endless stream of sensory impressions. We don't have too many choices about that, although we can learn to practice a little bit more restraint at the sense doors. But through the open windows and the doors flows this world of sensory impressions. And out through the open windows and the door flows something. And it's either going to be our habitual patterns of craving and aversion, confusion, flowing out through the windows and the doors, or it's going to be the qualities of heart and mind that we can cultivate in terms of restraint and kindness and compassion and mindfulness that actually flows out through those open windows and doors. And in the artwork or or in this image, what we do is we seek mindfulness upon the windowsills and the door sill. So we're quite attuned and sensitive both to what is flowing in, but also to what is flowing out. And this is also another way of seeing the wise gatekeeper is that mindfulness seated on the windowsills and the door sills, that we have choices. After the break, Christina Feldman answers the question, what is genuine happiness? She also talks about what she means by the power of giving greater authority to intentionality rather than to mood or story. And she shares her personal practice of setting life intentions every year. Keep it here. It's spring and that means it's graduation season. And I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique 
custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot happier. Let me go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You were quoting the Buddha. You or he or both of you used the words genuine happiness. So what is genuine happiness if it's not, you know, unlimited ice cream? <laughs> I think it's very easy to mistake happiness with gratification. I think much of our craving is driven by an inner culture of deficit, of insufficiency. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. And so we prowl the world, you know, we prowl the world of sensory impressions that we have attributed pleasant Vedana to. And it's not a genuine happiness. Yeah, we can have moments of success, moments of gratification, you know, moments of satiation. We think, oh, good, you know, it worked, got what I wanted. But it's not enduring. It's not lasting. It's a hit. It's a hit of gratification. And I think when the Buddha speaks about genuine happiness, it doesn't have anything to do with gratification. It has much to do with having a well-trained mind and heart. He said the source of happiness lies within our own hearts and minds. Developing, cultivating a heart, a mind where there's a sense of collectedness, aliveness, wakefulness, connectedness, calmness. This is actually the cultivation of enduring happiness. It's interesting in the Dhammapada, one of the you know, most loved early teachings of the Buddha, it says, true joy is born of a disciplined heart. And discipline doesn't mean shouting at ourselves or scolding or controlling. It means cultivating that which really contributes to a much more enduring, trustworthy well-being and happiness in the midst of all things, not just in the, the good moments of our lives or the easy moments of our lives, but in the midst of the challenging and the difficult and the uncontrollable, to have that heart and mind that's not bound by fear and aversion, that's really rooted in this deep sense of collectedness, gatheredness, calm, spaciousness. For me, this is the nature of genuine happiness. And it's not about elation or highs or the peak moments or the peak experiences. It's something quieter, but reliable. There's a tremendous freedom, you know, in 
getting up in the morning and not looking at the world and saying, make me happy. (laughs) So what are you looking at the world and saying? You're looking at the world and saying, we are interconnected. We, We are interrelated. I am touched by you. You are touched by me. And how are we touching each other today? You know, this person I meet, the situation, this event that I meet, how are we touching each other today? That to me is very different than saying, make me happy. Are you saying that your practice has helped you be happy no matter what happens, regardless of conditions? Depends. Again, it depends how we use the word happiness. In the terms of how I describe happiness, I have found that the practice has been transformative and hugely helpful in meeting life's difficulties without panic (laughs) and without fear. My parents never really could understand whatever I did, but they, for sure, every time they went through, you know, a hip surgery or an illness, who do we call? We call on you because you're the one who brings calm. You know, you're the one who doesn't panic. You're the one who can show up. And, you know, I'm not feeling particularly to brag about that, but it's a reality of being able to meet the difficult, I think, without being overwhelmed. And we're asked to do that in our lives. I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about how exactly you do that. Let me give you an example from my own life, because I, I can see this chain that we've talked about, the map, the chart that the Buddha made that includes as a key link, Vedana, playing out in my own life. Many years ago, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, I had some surgery on my face, which is a, you know, invokes some feelings of precarity among people like me who are TV anchors. So I had surgery on my face to remove a non-lethal form of skin cancer, basal cell carcinoma, and I have a little scar that's very hard to see. Kind of amazing because it was a huge cut they took out of my face, but now all there is is a little scar. But right in the middle of that little opaque scar, there's this red dot that has appeared in the last couple of days. My wife who's a physician, is telling me it's probably nothing. But I can see this whole chain. This is an unpleasant thing to see on my face. And I can go right down. This is metastatic melanoma. So how would your mind, as opposed to my untrained mind or relatively untrained mind, greet a data point such as this? Well, I might have those thoughts, but I might not feel obliged to believe in them too much. I might know that this is a very human response because of the pain associated with what has happened in the past. I might recognize that, oh yeah, it's throwing me right back into something that's gone by. I might have those thoughts, I don't know, but I don't believe that I would be tempted to give them too much authority. I would be tempted actually to call my doctor and say, look, something's going on here. I don't know what it is. Do you know what it is? Because certainly my proliferation and my anxieties and my storytelling is actually not going to be helpful here. So that's classic respond, not react. Back to the Viktor Frankl quote before. So the stimulus, questionable red dot, and the space is, okay, I can bring mindfulness, investigation, compassion to bear and respond wisely to this rather than freaking out blindly. Yeah, that is optional. That freaking out blindly, that's actually optional. And I think that, you know, we we start to recognize how quickly our world is built on the feeling tone of that red dot. You know, how you could go down that road and end up in, in really terrible places, emotionally, psychologically. 
You could also say, okay, I've gone down that road a bit, you know, and I can actually feel some compassion for the humanness of that. But I actually don't need to give authority to those thought patterns. One of the biggest shifts I ever see people make in practice is when they give greater authority to intentionality rather than to mood or story. I'm not sure I understand. Can you say more about what you mean by that? Well, in the example that you just gave, you can see how much authority you could give to the whole emotional world that arose. It means this, I'm going to be like this, you know, oh, I I really believe in these thoughts, you know, they're going to govern how I am just now, they're going to govern, you know, what I do. That's giving authority to mood. How often people say, well, I feel like doing something, so it's true, it's valid, it's authentic. It may not be. It may be far kinder to ourselves to give much more authority to the intentions we have to heal and to understand and to liberate rather than to the passing mood of the moment. That's the reactivity part, you know, when we give authority to move. This is what I feel. I feel really angry. So it's totally legitimate for me to shout at you. (laughs) You could be broadcasting from inside my skull. Just to get back to the shift that you described you seeing among your students, my default mode is not what you just described. I feel this way, so I'm justified in doing whatever I want. My default mode the place I revert to is, well, my intention is actually to not take every thought that flits through my mind as a dictator that I have to act out. And that's what I revert to more often than not. Yeah. Let me pick up on this word intention, because in your conversation with one of the producers for this show, you had a conversation with one of my producers, and then I read the notes from that, and that's how I prepared to talk to you. And in that conversation, you talked about life intentions, and cushion intentions. And I'd like to get you to talk about what those phrases mean, and then maybe also be quite specific about how we could apply it to Vedana. On a yearly basis, I commit to a life intention, something that I will wake up in the morning with, that I will remind myself of several times in a day, that I will return to, and I will give it the space of a year for it to really naturalize and for me to really understand the landscape that's involved. For example, one year I I had the intention to give up hurrying. That was my life intention. I was going to give up hurrying, quickly realizing that I could move quickly without hurrying, that hurrying was really a state of mind. So making that intention to give up hurrying didn't mean like I moved through my life like a tortoise. I could still move quite effectively when needed. But I was giving up that state of mind of hurrying, which was always, I realized, about leaning forward into something that hadn't happened or somewhere I hadn't arrived. In fact, it was so delightful to give up hurrying that I've I've never been tempted to take it up again. (laughs) It's just one of those life shifts that you can make. As I mentioned, I've made the life intention to have no more neutral people in my life. And that was actually one that I brought forward, I think a few years ago now, but it's been so revealing and so transformative that I continue to stay with it. And then on the cushion, I will make a meditative intention in my formal practice that I will stay with anywhere between three and six months at a time. You know, I may make the intention to cultivate metta or compassion or joyfulness 
you know, for several months at a time. That would be the intention of my practice. Or I might make the intention to cultivate more samadhi, more collectedness, more, yeah, more gatheredness. And I will stay with that intention for a period of time. I find it very beneficial in terms of deepening. Now, in Buddhist psychology, when the Buddha speaks about wise intention, it's a really short list. It's kindness, compassion, and the third is often spoken of as renunciation, but you can actually interchange renunciation with generosity. Kindness, compassion, generosity, not holding onto anything. And he speaks about three unwise intentions, craving, ill will, and clinging. We can bring those intentions into everything that we explore, including Vedana, including feeling tone, to have the intention of kindness. When we find ourselves, you know, in the familiar loops or in those lost spaces, to bring compassion and to bring generosity of non-clinging. You can't always make direct links between all of the pieces of the Buddhist jigsaw, but the wise intention is always important in everything that we do because it's a forerunner of our speech, of our actions, of our thinking. With Vedana, you can bring Vedana into the field of intentionality to actually feel compassion, to feel compassion for the painfulness of craving and aversion. You can bring the generosity, the non-clinging, to our, our stories, our narratives that are born of the Vedana imprints, to make non-clinging or generosity at the heart of our lives is quite profound. And much of our storytelling, you know, so easily becomes the ground of our holding, our world-shaping, our self-shaping. And if we were going to make an intention, a cushion intention or a life intention around Vedana, can you just say a little bit more about you know, pretty technically, you don't have to guide us in meditation per se, but how we could boost the salience of Vedana, say, on the cushion, and therefore, by extension, our lives. It's easier on the cushion. It is easier on the cushion. You actually, when you sit down, you know, you set that intention to be mindful of feeling tongue. That, that's actually really important. This is not a kind of random mindfulness. It's not an accidental mindfulness. That you actually set the intention to be mindful of Vedana tones. Now, you may still be continuing to be mindful of the breathing process, of the body, and yet you will see that whenever your attention is drawn away, say from mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the body, it's because there's been the imprint of a stronger Vedana tone, hmm. a thought or a body sensation or a sound. And in those moments when your attention is drawn away, from your initial focus, so you start to see that your attention is beginning to kind of jump on something, pause for a moment. What's the Vedana tone? What's the feeling tone? Christina, you've done a great job of defining Vedana, helping us understand its key role in the architecture of our distress and suffering, and then helping us think about how and why to practice with it on the cushion and in our lives. I'm sensitive to your time. So before I let you go, if people want to learn more from you, can you just mention some of the books you've written or other resources you've put out into the world, retreats, et cetera? 
I'm quite involved. I have been quite involved in the contemporary mindfulness world. In, well, I've taught in a number of universities, training people to be mindfulness teachers. So my, my last book was Mindfulness, Ancient Wisdom Meets Contemporary Psychology. I have a couple of books out on the Brahmaviharas, The Boundless Heart, Compassion. In my past and in my present, I've been very involved in the place of women, both in Dharma circles and socially. So I have a a few books out on that. Most of my teaching at the moment happens through Bodhi College, B-O-D-H-I College. This is where I have the opportunity to teach more extended courses, to dive into the early texts and to teach from those places and to co-teach with people who, you know, who are both very skilled and learned and engaged. So if you go on the Body College website, that's actually where you see really where I'm teaching most these days. Well, thank you for teaching us about Vedana and for sharing those resources for people who want to learn more. And thank you for your time today. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Dan. It was also a pleasure. Enjoy. Thanks again to Christina Feldman. Great to finally meet her. Just to say, I have been experimenting with the uh, intention of not hurrying or rushing. Every morning, I just tell myself, today, I'm, I'm not going to hurry or rush. And of course, I do. But I, I'm more prone, I think, to notice it, having set that intention. And it's been really interesting to watch the rushing uh, rush in and uh, to ride it rather than uh, be owned by it. So anyway, thanks again to Christina. Thanks as well to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday. And by the way, our series on the four foundations of mindfulness will continue on Wednesdays. So coming up on Wednesday, we're going to talk to the great Buddhist scholar, Bhikkhu Bodhi. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.